Hi everyone, it's Landon. And it's Monique. And we are here on Zoom again, because yeah. funny thing, COVID hasn't gone away. I haven't seen Monique in now a year and three months or something. Um, but we are here with another episode of our podcast and we are really excited today to bring you uh, a podcast. We've having some guest speakers recently and we have a whole group of guest speakers uh, today and to sort of describe who is with us and, and what we're going to talk about, uh, I'd like to introduce Charlene. Hello and thank you for having us here. Uh, so my name is Charlene Burmeister and I am the person with lived and living experience stakeholder engagement lead at the BC Centre for Disease Control. Um, and we're coming to you here today uh, as the a group PEEP. And the history of PEEP was that uh, PEEP, the acronym PEEP actually stood for the Peer Engagement and Evaluation Project, which was a research project that started uh, about five years ago, uh, where we went to community and engaged people with lived and living experience and service providers around access to harm reduction services and the successes and barriers that people um, were finding when accessing services and harm reduction supplies themselves. And that research from that research was born a lot of uh, really great projects that we identified through the data that we collected with uh, participants from the PEEP project. Since then, PEEP has been supported through the CDC to continue and we've kind of um, moved towards more of an advisory and consultation um, board. And so our acronym has been changed to professionals uh, for ethical engagement of peers. And so we as PEEP members identify as people with past or present lived experience with substance use. Um, and that is how we come to you here today. And we look forward to this rich conversation to talk a bit about some of the challenges and successes um, that people with lived experience face when accessing healthcare systems. Thank you and welcome. Thanks Excellent. Charlene. Um, you know, this is really interesting to me. Um, and we have, this is kind of a companion piece to the piece uh, that we had with Dr. Jane Buxton about specifically how COVID was impacting uh, or adding to the crisis of the overdose crisis in British Columbia and, and frankly all over the world. And a lot of what your group is doing is not just within hospitals, it's also within communities. Could you maybe talk a little bit, I'm not sure which one of these wonderful people are gonna talk to us about this, but could you talk a little bit for us as healthcare professionals, the type of stigma that um, influences perhaps people's reluctance to come into or access healthcare, particularly the emergency department. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Jenny McDougall, and I'm also a member of PEEP. Um, so I do a lot of advocacy in the town I live in, which is, and we um, bring people to doctor's appointments and um, emergency room and et cetera. And uh, what I've noticed, so yeah, I feel yeah. like um, a lot a lot of people um, identify with being treated um, with discrimination um, if they're drug users. I know my own personal experience. Um, when I go in, I automatically, um, I'm seen as a drug seeker um, because of my file and my past. I haven't, um, I've been on medication for a while and I haven't been using drugs for quite a few years, but the first thing that I'm asked when I go in there is about drug use. And it um, doesn't matter if I have, um, like a, if they can see an injury even, I'm drug seeking and I don't get any pain relief. Um, so that's one thing. And um, 
I know another experience, uh, me and my boyfriend, we moved to this small community and we both lived with HIV and going in to get our blood work done, even we were treated with discrimination um, as well as while he was staying in the hospital um, with having HIV as well as being drug users. So I feel like the fear of that happening, being belittled and treated with discrimination stops people from going in. As well as sometimes I, I used to look at people like nurses and doctors as authority figures. Um, and it, that also caused me fear to go in because I felt like I was going to get in trouble. You know, um, I was scared of losing my medications. So I wouldn't reach out for help, um, specifically around drug use. Um, and same with infections. I was ashamed and embarrassed and I didn't want to be ridiculed by the doctor. So I wouldn't go. Thank you. Thank, thank you for that, Jenny. Um, that was, that was very insightful, actually. Thank you for that. Um, I think Marnie as well had to, uh, or wanted to say something. Or you were told, you were told you would say something by Charlene. So, <laughs> um, yeah, my name is Marnie Scow. I also, Sorry. I'm also a member of PEEP. Um, yeah, so I can, for me, I have a perspective as an Indigenous person um, and also the lens of a, a drug user and an indigenous person. And I think that I have been afforded some privileges of having light skin, but even as an indigenous person with light skin, I've experienced systemic racism within the healthcare system. And, you know, with my personal journey, I've gone from being a service provider to a service recipient back to a service provider. And mm, I would say that the first point of contact makes a world of difference when we are trying to access <clears throat> some form of healthcare, whether it's in the emergency department, um, a clinic, pharmacy, whatever that looks like, that first point of contact often determines whether or not a person is going to stay in access service or leave. And so the additional barrier that it's experienced in the emergency department is quite often security guards, um, burnt out front desk clerks, um, people who are going a mile a minute and overworked and underpaid and don't have the time to treat you like a human being sometimes. Or because of the internalized stigma that I have around myself and my own substance use and the decisions and choices I've made, I take them having a bad day personally. And so that may not be the way they're intending to treat me, but it's the way that I'm taking it on. And so quite often I think that that gap in communication and understanding creates an additional barrier um, also, as an Indigenous person, I'm like, are they treating me like this because I'm Indigenous? Is this, is this a racist thing? And unfortunately, that's something that always crosses <clears throat> in the back of my mind when, when I'm experiencing something. Why did I get pulled over? Why is this person acting like that? And I try to really refrain and reduce my own internalized stigma, but absolutely it pops up um, on occasion. And it takes a lot of work to work through those things. But I think that another thing for folks... Um, and then I have the additional layer of being previously incarcerated. And, and so, you know, if you're on some type of opiate replacement therapy medication and you come out of prison and you want to go to a pharmacy to access your, your prescription and you don't have ID, you're done. That's it. You know, there's no additional conversation or you go to the hospital and it's hard to access your files or then you have to disclose that you were a previous drug user and that you're on Suboxone or Methadone or you need to get some type of prescription. And it's, it's a lot of barriers and a lot of having the same conversation over and over again and a lot of um, unsafe or uncomfortable conversations and situations. 
I really appreciate you sharing uh, both Jenny and Marnie because it's very powerful for us uh, to actually hear how you feel when you come in, right? And I think sometimes we forget instead of a person first, Very. You, you have all of Join those other things that come ahead of it. Um, and that might be us, or it might be because of your lived experience that those things you're sensitive to as well, you know? So it, it's, you know, it was funny talking about, you, you should always say people first, right? Like uh, I have a friend who's blind and he says he would like to people to say he's a, he's a person or a man who has, you know, who is legally blind as, instead of a blind person, because the person part should define you and the rest of it is other things, right? But the person part should come first. So I really want to thank you because it is very powerful for us to hear that. And, and I appreciate the vulnerability of sharing those feelings with us. I, I is there someone else that wants to add there, something? Yeah, was there someone who wanted to add to that question? Because I have well, a follow-up. Sure, I, I would just like to say something about it. My name is Jessica Lamb and I live out in British Columbia. So a lot of the times what I'm seeing with the emergency room, like the emergency department here is just like, and it's, you know, we see it in a lot of places that this idea that drug use is a moral or like a moral thing or a, or a personal failing. And, you know, so often many times people go into the emergency room and because their intention is not to get clean. And I say that because, you know, we can't be clean because we were never dirty in the first place. Um, but so oftentimes people are just like disregarded because like the, the, they don't want to get clean. So they're denied certain services, right? Like hearing, um, if you, if you're accessing the emergency department and you're not saying, well, I want to change my life around, oftentimes they won't even offer you methadone if you're a person who uses opioids. So all of a sudden we have somebody in the emergency department who's like detoxing and going through a traumatic situation because what they are doing isn't lining up with what the doctors or nurses think we should do. So, you know, in British Columbia right now, there's a huge shift from like being like drug use is a moral issue to drug use is like, it, it can be a medical issue too, right? And really, I think it's so important. Like I would love to see emergency departments just meet that person where they're at authentically and just work with them, you know, regardless of whether they wanna get off drugs or if they wanna continue using drugs, right? Like, you know, and, and having that experience where you're being forced to to do something or you're not being offered services like do you think I would really want to go back to an emergency room department if you know they didn't offer me methadone and I was a person who used opioids and now I'm having to go through withdrawal like hell no I'm not gonna go back like mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll let my hand fall off with an infection before before I go back and access healthcare services and this is the type of thing that we're seeing in our community right now yeah um, I'd like to uh I'm throw in here thank, you. thank you Paul because I was about to say I'm for once speechless I can't even think of what to say so thank you for saving me Paul <laughs> <laughs> okay well I just want to continue on with the uh, the substance use 
uh, thing where um, it's considered as a criminal or um, usually because uh, my experience, a lot of the work that I've been doing is out of a community health center. And uh, anytime there is someone that comes into access services, um, other departments have problems with uh, the bathroom or, you know what I mean, just and, and it, it's, it's all turned into a big safety issue. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a community health center and we have an opioid epidemic, you know, that's been lasting way too long. Mm -hmm. And uh, we st still have problems having people use the bathroom, you know, the way uh, I see it. And we've been doing harm reduction services out of a health center for the last 10 years. Um, and you would think we'd be a little bit more progressive at this point, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and and this is a lot of problems that people have, and it's usually staff, and they have maybe a moral issue, uh, maybe they don't understand substance use, but the thing is, is they tend to group everybody in the same, you know, little pigeonhole, where you have, uh, you know, a huge variety of people that use substances, and <laughs> They don't have problems with it. Sherry wants to say something. Sorry, Sherry, go ahead. Sherry here. And the thing is, too, like, you know, we all have some similarities, but mm -hmm. we are not all the same, you know, and I think we really need to drill that in people's, people's little minds, right? Mm -hmm. That's all I'll say. I think that's a fair comment, Sherry. And thank you, Paul and Jess, for sharing. I think what really struck me when you were talking, Jess, was, and I think I've heard this before, it maybe was with Jane, about meeting people where they are. Um, and I think that that's so important about thinking about anything, even doesn't, it doesn't matter where in our lives, it's about meeting that person where they are and helping or you know, and, and understanding that I have to be met where I am too, right? My understanding of where things are as well. So I really, that really resonated with me about meeting people where they are and trying to understand where are you in your journey and how is it best that I support you right now? And that way you leave a, a door open uh, that allows them to access care again because they don't feel that judgment perhaps. So I really do appreciate that. And I think, Paul, the other thing that really resonated with me when you were talking about that is that when you can't even come into a place and use the bathroom, you feel less human um, and you feel that dignity of humanity has been lost. And, and so, again, we need to have step back a little bit and think about that bigger picture. And yeah, that really it hurt my heart, actually, Paul, uh, for you to say that. It's, it's such a lovely thing um, for you to say that. And Jenny's written here that um, it's called client-centered care. It absolutely is. And uh, it's about not just saying the words, though, Jenny. You got to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So I really appreciate both of those things, uh, all of you. And Sherry, you're absolutely right. Everybody is different. And so um, again, meeting them where they are, where that specific person is, and where what has um, defined who they are when they come to access our care. I think Landon and I have had our, our brains a bit uh, blown apart here just listening to your lived experience. Um, you know, the question Charlene that I wanted here. to ask you guys, because it's, it's wonderful to hear. Charlene, Charlene had something oh, to say. I sorry, think. Charlene, I interrupted. Sure. 
Go ahead, oh, No problem. Uh, I just wanted to like talk a little bit more about that too, because I think that we as people with lived experience and certainly in the roles that we play advocating and supporting other people that we see quite often when people um, present in healthcare settings that um, use substances are either identified by what people think are visual cues or something that's been placed on our chart or something like that, that we're not met with the healthcare um, that we're pre that we're usually presently seeking at that time. We are met are with. Are, are you thinking about going to treatment? Are there, you know, like it's never. It doesn't always seem to be about the purpose that we've come there for that day. And another thing that many people see is that um, because we're identified as substance users in whatever context, quite often our pain management is never a consideration. It's like this moral. Um, mindset that people have not to give drugs to drug users, even when it's in the context of healthcare and pain management. And so uh, these are situations that we face over and over and over again. And uh, Beth was talking about this the other day that, um, you know, even if you move to a place of an, a role of abstinence in your life, that that follows you and they still always have the mindset of you as still being an active substance user. Like they don't believe you could possibly be at a place of abstinence. Mm -hmm. And with some doctors too, like, you know, I have a way that um, I want to try and detox and he thinks that he knows me so well that he says, uh, no, uh, we've talked about that and you know what I think is best and, um, and, you're, just, and you're not willing to do that, right? So until you know, until we're until you're willing to kind of come my way, well, you know, kind of you're not you're not. In other words, you're not going to get that kind of help from me, right? So mm -hmm. then I have to find somebody else, and who do I find? Yeah, like you know, it's yeah. it's just harder all the time, and and it's supposed to be getting easier. Yeah, that that you're absolutely right, Sherry, and I just wanted to correct. Something we talked about client-centered care, I think um, Jenny was saying, but uh, I think as Marnie said, it probably should be people-centered care, shouldn't it? Um, and that's that's way better. And Sherry, I totally understand what you're saying. It is a bit frustrating and you feel that you lose a bit of hope uh, when people aren't in partnership with you uh, in your journey. And so, you know, I just wanted to acknowledge that, um, that it must be very difficult for you. Yeah, you know, you get all, okay, I've got a plan, I get it all together. Wow, I've got a plan. I'm getting a little excited here. I've got a plan, right? Yeah. Oh, no, 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 that's not going to do it. No. Because <laughs> I go yeah. the skirt. <laughs> I know, it can be a bit challenging. May I ask yeah. you, I know. I think Marnie, Marnie, uh, Marnie had a comment to make. Oh, uh, sorry. Go ahead, Marnie. Yeah, no, I just wanted to comment too, because like we're talking about this, like, drug seeking allegations and peep we've talked about this as a whole multiple times that it's actually really funny because like i promise you i have money in my bank account and i am way more resourceful <laughs> that i do not need to come and sit in an emergency department room for six to eight hours plus to get not even enough drugs to get high yeah so if i am sitting in an emergency department it is because i desperately need medical care because i refuse to go before it becomes desperate and yeah. it, you know and it's it's this power dynamic that mm -hmm. creates this unequal relationship. And it's a, I don't know, like I 
do a lot of facilitating around indigenous harm reduction and creating curriculum and how indigenous harm reduction is more about like person-centered relationships, connections. And mm -hmm. how about we ask people what they need and how about mm -hmm. we include people in their continuum of care? I don't yeah. feel like it's that crazy of a concept to yeah. talk to somebody and, and include them in this process because it's my life, it's my body, it's my needs. And I'm not gonna sit in an emergency department for eight hours to get. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, Thanks for that, Marnie. I, I had an opportunity. Um, I will say it was probably the best um, opportunity I've had in my career to work at Insight for two years. And uh, and I had uh, uh, one of the participants there say that exact thing to me at one point, Marnie, say, say you, do you think I would go to a hospital to get, like, what, what you see on the desk here is 10 times more than you would ever give me in the hospital. So why would I ever go to the hospital to seek drugs? And I think mm -hmm. that's a that's an important message, I think, for healthcare providers um, to hear is this, I would not choose to get my whatever I need the way that I'm choosing right now of sitting here for eight hours um, just to get, you know, two milligrams of morphine that you're going to give me, which is a hundred times less than I need. Can we, can we shift gears a little bit here and talk about if we could look at what can we do uh, or what can you suggest would be helpful to actually have that culture change? Are there small things that could be done that are achievable? Are there larger organizational things? Oh, Paul's got, Paul's got his hand up. He's got ideas. I like it, Paul. <laughs> yeah. um, first of all, I wanted to jump in uh, earlier to say something that uh, you should be treating it as healthcare, not health enforcement. Um, <laughs> because there seems to be a lot of more law enforcement than actual care. You know, um, also um, to have more people with lived experience present, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in Emerge, you know, specifically mm -hmm. also too for some of the overdose, you know, kind of care, um, mm -hmm. fitting that gap that's been there for quite a long time. I think it's time that we should stop having that gap there and have more people with lived experience helping out in eMERGE and they should also be in all the healthcare centers and, and anywhere where there's care. Thanks so Paul, I, it's, what you're talking about is pure liaisons, right? Like people that we can access within the healthcare or any kind of healthcare that we have some peer liaisons or advocates. Yeah, uh, I, I would like to kind of to us. get away from uh, instead of saying the word peer because now the healthcare center at uh, the healthcare um, I mean, the health authority uh, uh -huh. is taking the word peer and diluting it a bit. So okay. I, I like the lived and living experience because okay. uh, it's, it's that living experience is what qualifies us to do this work. So okay. uh, through our ex experience, it's easier for us to contact other people with lived experience mm -hmm. with that same kind of meeting people where they're at because that concept has come from people with lived experience and most of the work that I've been doing in harm reduction has been uh, community engagement, meeting people where they're at, um, you know, and, and being able to try to bring that to a healthcare center where you have all these rules, uh, all of these safety concerns, health and safety kind of stuff, right? Um, so all I'm really seeing out of the health care 
um, community is just health and care is, is not what it should be, mm -hmm. you know, more care in, in the work that we do, you know, mm -hmm. will make a big difference. I feel like it would make a huge difference if uh, doctors and nurses and medical staff um, would put their own personal opinions aside and just do the job, um, treat um, every patient like um, an individual mm -hmm. um, and not like not um, just going to instant judging, whether that's based on race or drug use or poverty or whatever the case may be. Um, personal biases need to stay stay out of the job that they do. Um, I think it's really, really important. I think education around that can be very helpful to, to um, nurses and doctors and other medical staff. Even the secretary should be educated on the, the language and stuff because I find a lot of really rude secretaries at front desks at Oak Clinics, at uh, doctor's offices, and, and they don't know, like they should be trained um, a little bit better around language skills and communication skills and to keep those biases at home, not at work. It sounds like what you're saying, Jenny, is a lot of times that we need to include it in curriculums, don't we? Like medical definitely, and have definitely. You know, nursing curriculums and actually have people with lived experience come and teach those, right? As yes. opposed to somebody who hasn't got that lived experience coming to teach those. So that would be yeah, very- Yeah, I do that. Yeah. I speak to the nursing student classes at our university here uh, every year now for the last three years. We, me and my partner, Louise, have gone in and done it. Well, oh. she came in the last year. Um, and yeah, the I still see them now, but I see them a couple of years ago and they're working in the field now. Oh, I remember you, you came and speak at our class, yeah. spoke at our class and, um, and it, it really helps them. I've been, I've been mm -hmm. told by numerous people that have been in those things that you really opened my eyes and gave me something to think about. So I think it's very valuable to have that happening. Excellent. Jess, what were you going to say, love? I'm going to open the floor to you. <laughs> I wish yeah, you guys could totally see Jess because she's got like the best hat on today. Yeah, oh, I'm obsessed with hats. Anyways, yeah, so it's about awareness, education, and compassion. And I know like we've had um, a really cool opportunity come our way here. And we're hoping we're working with our regional harm reduction uh, coordinator and the emergency department here to go in and do some training with the emergency staff. So we're going to be covering topics like stigma, um, trauma-informed care, cultural humility, harm reduction, and overdose response. And it is going to be led by people with lived and living experience um, in this. And, you know, I think that you know, during some of these planning meetings, like it came up where the lady, the, you know, the head of the emergency department said something along the lines of like, well, I don't understand why people don't want to use or don't want to recover. And it's just like, well, this comes back to like meeting people where they're at. Right. And so I'm really excited about this opportunity to go in and speak with them. Um, hopefully it has a good outcome and we're not tokenized as peers. <laughs> the planning <laughs> process has been a little bit difficult. Um, I do understand like emergency room departments are, are busy, but like we still need to be treated with equality um, as, as peers with lived experience too, right? Like what did I hear the other day um, that like, you know, my lived experience probably costs more money and more time than your PhD right like except for I don't have letters to go behind my name so you know but yeah 
that's what we're trying to do here in these and hopefully that expands to other communities here in in the and we'll see how it goes like mm -hmm. i have a, a question and this is you know ask if asked from the, the right place and it probably won't come across properly um but just i, I want to build on that language piece a bit um, I'll be honest, like I've, I've worked, I, I'm also a paramedic in the downtown east side. I've worked at Vancouver General Hospital. I've worked at Insight. I would like you to educate me on what is the right language to use. Um, you know, the, the reality is there are appropriate situations to use language that this person is someone who uses a substance of some form and like that is clinically relevant at times, but I'll be honest, I don't actually know the right way to pass that information along from one care provider to the next in a way that I can't see myself being able to say it without their judgment coming into it. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you if you have recommendations or, or you uh, have language that you teach everyone else and this is just the first time we've all met and everyone else already knows this and I don't. Um, but yeah, I, if someone wants to wave at me and Charlene here. Um, I wouldn't mind speaking to that a little bit. Uh, I think that so we recognize the importance around language and how language frames our ideas um, and perceptions of people in situations. And I think that using terms that are person first, like um, this per uh, a person who uses substances or a person who uses. Um, cocaine or a person who uses alcohol or a person who has a substance use disorder or an opioid use disorder and we challenge that term quite often as well the term disorder um problematic substance use is a reality we cannot deny that but it is really important to note that many people have good relationships with drugs as well and even if our world might look chaotic and problematic to other people there are many of us who have who have publicly um admitted that substance use has actually kept us alive at some point in our life it has prevented suicide it has prevented other things that potentially could have um, that we were just not able to manage what was going on due to past, past traumas or, you know, um, re-traumatization or all of those important points. But I think overall society views substance use other than alcohol, which is very ironic because even though substances are still criminalized, we have more negative effects from alcohol on social systems than we do from anything else. And people who use alcohol have the privilege of being able to go to a regulated safe supply um, for their drug of choice, which would be alcohol. And we are left victims every day to a toxic market where we have to worry about our own lives, the people we love, the colleagues that we work with, because we don't have the same privilege as Canadians of having access to a safe regulated supply of the substance of our choice, whether problematic or otherwise. This is the reality is that prohibition has brought is is born from racism and our ideals today are still because it's criminalized we cannot reduce stigma as long as it's a criminalized activity and that just important to note that prohibition is rooted in racism as i said and we have this is an epic failure the war on drugs is an epic failure and it is uh, equated to nothing less than a war on human beings and we as people as canadians 
as you know, people of the earth have the right to be able to access things and make our own autonomous decisions on what we want to put in our body. And our government has an obligation to ensure that we are safe. You're never going to stop drug use. We need to stop this ridiculous narrative of that drug use is a moral failing. And we need to start thinking differently to save our future generations. We're also missing that key component quite often around one of the pillars is you know, education and prevention. And we're failing our children. We're not teaching them how to deal with traumas, how to have resiliency. There's so many pieces to this puzzle that are floating that have never been put together so that we can respond to this unfortunate situation that we find ourselves in today in a much better way. And it can be much better. better. These are preventable deaths that we're facing. Mm -hmm. Sorry, my soapbox rarely has breaks. <laughs> I, Charlene, I love that you called it a soapbox because Monique and I as well have soapboxes that we get on in our podcast sometimes. And we sometimes have to drag each other off each other's soapboxes. So uh, we like thank, your soapbox, Charlene. I, I, I love your soapbox. And, and uh, you know, it's a, definitely a message that Dr. Buxton uh, uh, passed along as well around the, the safe supply and, and the decriminalization. And, and it was mm -hmm. definitely something that I know hit Monique and I. Um, I think Paul had something to say. As well. Yeah, well, definitely. Safer supply is something that's been a long time waiting. Uh, because if you talk about harm reduction, where you talk about uh, safer sex, safer smoking, safer injection, the only component we're missing is safer supply, if we want to make the full circle on harm reduction. Um, it has to be taken out of the, the whole criminal aspect. And this is something I saw, I think, 20 years ago or maybe even longer uh david suzuki was talking about how substance use uh should be a medical problem and not a criminal problem but still we still have law enforcement which is part of healthcare, you mm -hmm. know for some reason um uh if we talk about when i do the take home naloxone trainings we talk about uh, opiates and how many opiates there are uh, there's only one opiate, but the, mm -hmm. the others are opioids, and those are the ones that are used by uh, the health authority. So, and this is what's infecting the whole uh, supply, which is fentanyl, which comes from the health authority, which they use on children, on old people, you know, so um, it's kind of a bit hypocritical, if you think about it. Well, and I, you know, Monique and I definitely both come from the the health uh, generation that caused this problem and and fully admit that that you know I I went to nursing school where they told me uh, don't worry if they have pain they won't get addicted it's once they don't have pain anymore that they'll get addicted we all know now that that obviously was not the case but that's what we were told and 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 so you know it's it's a big job in trying to even dispel that statement amongst healthcare facilities because you know Monique and I obviously keep up to date with things we do a podcast and everything there are still providers there who I hear saying the same thing to someone who's got a broken arm oh I know you don't think you need this but I'm going to give you some morphine anyway as long as you have pain you won't get addicted and it you know it's uh we know that that's not the case so yeah can I ask you guys because I often use the word dependency as opposed to um substance use uh you know i often will say you know this is a person who has a drug dependency on uh opiates or a drug dependency on 
um, whatever it is. Is that is that a terminology that's okay to use or not? Marnie? I, I think you need to ask the person that you're talking to. Okay. I think that that's a big part of it. And that's that okay. the care of incorporating people into the process, but also like, can we change the structure around talking about drugs? To me, drugs right. are medicine. I don't like the term substance abuse or misuse. I use drugs <clears throat> sometimes at a way higher rate because I don't want to feel what I'm feeling mm -hmm. um, at that time. And so it's numbing that or blocking that out. And it is absolutely doing what I was intending it to do. So how okay. can you tell me that that's a misuse or an abuse of medicine? Because drugs mm -hmm. absolutely are medicine. And okay. each of us have an individual relationship with substance. And, and I don't owe anybody else an explanation around that relationship. Mm -hmm. Right? And I've gone through bouts where, you know, experimental and curiosity and abstinence and medicinal or recreational. And also as an Indigenous person, like I would include uh, spiritual and ceremonial, right? Mm -hmm. Like I am able to access medicines because I think drugs are medicine. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to change the narrative around it that like abstinence is a success and drug use is problematic and it's hard because things are criminalized. And that baffles my mind because like, we can't trust the legal system to tell us what's moral and what's right. And that should never be an indicator. You know what I mean? Like you look at residential schools, Nazism, slavery, there's all these things that were once legal, but they were never moral. Right. And unfortunately, like we drug users are going to keep experiencing stigma and, and shame and all these other things. It, as long as something stays criminalized, it baffles my mind that this is still a thing in 2021, but unfortunately yeah. it is. And we that's a really good point. I love that Marnie. So just ask the patient, how would you like to just very much like when we have, um, patients who come in who are transgender, I often ask them, how would you like me to refer to you, it would be the same way, I guess, Marnie, is how would you like me to describe? Yeah, but also right? just that like I'm more than than my relationship with substance. I'm an actor, yeah. I'm a friend, and I'm a coworker, and, yeah. and I get to be all these other amazing things, and I don't just need to be identified mm -hmm. through my substance use or my, my relationship with substance, and um, mm -hmm. not everybody is dependent. Yeah, I think for me, Marnie, it's more... For me, it's about educating somebody else about the fact that if they ask me, well, why did you give this person or order so much drugs? I always will say, well, because they need that much. I've spoken to them and they have a dependency or whatever. So, you know, that's, they're using this much. And so they need this much in order for them to be comfortable to try to decrease some of that judgment. It was, it's not meant to define them. It's more meant to explain why I don't want them to get a fuss about getting more drugs. So it's usually a conversation I have with patients who they need something for pain. And I might say to you, Marnie, you know, I, I see that you have used some, you know, opiates. Can you tell me what you need from me? How much do you need from me in order for you to be comfortable? So that's the conversation I have, not about defining the person. It's just more to, I guess, help me to appreciate how much they might need, like in partnership with them, right? So, and then I guess in that case, I would say if you were having that conversation with like, say a coworker, or you felt yeah. the need to explain your decision, yeah. I would say that I am trying to keep them alive. Okay. You cannot over-prescribe. Yeah. 
comes to nope yet, it's because you don't know a person's tolerance or this person has an increased yeah. tolerance. And also if I don't prescribe them what's necessary, there's a good chance they're going to go out and access yeah. drugs and die. Exactly. Right. So it's at this point, it's, it's about keeping people safe and keeping people alive. And those conversations I'd imagine as a healthcare provider can be super uncomfortable and awkward. Um, but definitely appreciated that you're willing to have those conversations. We need more mm -hmm. people who are willing to have these difficult dialogues. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think Landon and I kind of feel that that's part of solution and culture change, right? That if we don't talk about it, if we don't kind of confront it when we're dealing with it, and certainly as a person who has to, uh, as a nurse practitioner, I certainly have to prescribe uh, medications for patients who come into the emergency department. It's important for me to have that, um, what is that, real-in-time teaching for uh, the folks around me. Um, I'm very fortunate because I do have access to an addiction specialist. So whenever I'm struggling a little bit with not knowing exactly how to best manage them, I can call them and say, hey, listen, this is the situation. Um, and I've given this much, but they're still not comfortable. I really would appreciate you coming down to help me uh, so that we can kind of treat the person. So I think that that's another kind of solution is having access to addiction services uh, to help to support, not maybe you guys, but to support the healthcare providers to be able to provide adequate um, care for um, patients, right? And I think that that would be something that I would support from an organizational perspective in a lot of health authorities is to have somebody to call and say, hey, listen, this is what I'm struggling with. Because I think from my perspective as, as a healthcare provider, I think a lot of it, somebody mentioned it in this group, is ignorance, right? Like I wasn't brought up in, in um, nursing school to understand or appreciate um, the whole pain management issue, right? Like that, that, I still struggle a little bit with it. Like how much you know, there's no equivalency. I don't know what I'm worried about. I don't know what combos work best, right? And so it's nice for me to be able to access somebody to help me um, help my patients, right? Uh, that come in to access care. Would you agree, Landon? Yeah, but I think, I think Jenny wanted to say something as well. She was, she was jumping through her screen at me at one point. <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to kind of echo what Marnie said. I was listening to you describe the conversations you have with your patients, um, asking them how much they need to be comfortable. And I just want to commend you on that. Um, I think that's, that's amazing. And it's, um, it's really wonderful to hear that that's what's happening. Um, I, I, like just to be asked that question, I, I, we, like there's one doctor that I that we're doing that work with that does ask that question, but it's very far in in be, or whatever that saying is very few in between. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but it's it doesn't happen much, especially up north. Uh, we're really struggling to find northern doctors that will that are even willing to look at and and think about prescribing. So I just love hearing that. Um, you know, as a as a nurse, that's what you're doing, and yeah, like thank you, thank you oh. for doing that. Listen, it's because of you guys, right? Like, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think Landon and I have, you know, I think you looked a little shocked, Jenny, when Landon was talking about how we were taught, but you need to understand 
I'm old, honey. I've been doing this a long, long time. Probably way before you were even born was when I was in nursing school. So, you know, I have a nursing, I had a nursing cap. I could only wear a dress and white tights in nursing school. Like we're, I'm aging myself, I know, but, uh, but I, I, I hope that we, through our, our lived experience of being in the healthcare provide, pro, uh, profession is being open to and changing, right? As we are impacted by the patients that, that we see and the people that we see. Um, and I hope that Landon and I are open enough to that. Um, I do, I'm cognizant of how long we're going and you guys have been so generous with your time. I'm wondering if there is one particular point or that each of you want to make as you, you know, to leave us with, or if there's two or three, if there, if each of you want to say something, I, Landon, do you, what well, do you think? I, and I want to, I want to build a little scenario around it because we know that a lot of our listeners are frontline emergency nurses. And so it, you know, I think we've, you know, we've covered the, the, the system change and decriminalization and that kind of thing. If there were one or two things that each of you could say, man, if this triage nurse or eMERGE nurse was not in a, a power control relationship with me right now, this is what I really wish they would learn. And so <laughs> it's like, what is your message to that frontline nurse? Cause they'll listen and they'll listen to you. And what is that one thing that the next time you come in you want them to either ask you or not ask you or do or not do. If you each sort of had your one big thing that is, you know, your big, oh God, this drives me crazy. I think that's a, that's a good take home for our, our listeners who are all mainly frontline staff. So um, I don't know if someone wants to go first. I hate picking people because <laughs> <laughs> that's the nurse. That's I the nurse. Think, I, I don't want to put yeah. anyone on the spot. Go ahead, Jess. Go ahead, Jess. So my my experience recently is like I am one of the very few people in the province of British Columbia who has been given access to a safer supply of substances, and you know I um, ended up accessing it through my family doctor to start with, and then finally, finally, finally um got a referral to the OAT clinic, and now the OAT doctor is in charge of my um OAT as well as my safer supply and working with my family doctor was like oh it was a horrible experience as soon as I got on she wanted me to get off and she said to me during the appointment that you know I don't really feel comfortable with giving you this prescription because if you overdose and die on it it's my reputation that's on the line I'm the one who's going to be in trouble and what that tells me is that her six-figure paycheck is way way more important than my life. And so I've started working with this new doctor and they're meeting me where I'm at, like unbelievably meeting me where I'm at. And I think it's because of my, um, like more so my role in harm reduction and my advocacy work that like, they have to meet me where I'm at or they don't want to deal with the consequences sort of thing right because I you know if I'm not treated fairly then I I don't keep my mouth shut right like I'll, I'll file a complaint about it but you know I am being met where I'm at right now and the way like you know it's changed the views that I have about myself, like, wow, somebody's really actually willing to work with me and, and not force me to get off. And it's changed it so that like, 
yeah, you know, I, I am like reconsidering stuff and you know it, it's just been such a different experience it's given me like it's empowered me right and um I want to go see my doctor and I enjoy doing it and I'm I'm not scared and stressed out and when I'm scared and stressed out I'm using more right like it's been so the message that I would have is like you know I said this for another project that we were on is like when it comes to language, like we're people before the problem, right? Like first and foremost, like we are people and human beings. And if you meet somebody where they're at, you'll get a lot further with that person than trying to tell them what they can, what you think they should do with their lives. Thank you for that, Jess. Thank you very much. Um, Paul, you have your hand up. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say the simplest thing you could do is just ask, just ask because everybody's different everybody has different needs you just ask the person meet the person where they're at that's as basic as it as you know it can be awesome thank you paul jenny do you have something to say um yes i was gonna say um i like when I go into a doctor's office um, or to see a nurse um, and they're looking at the computer and they're not looking at me and they're trying to rush me out, um, I don't want to go back. I, I just feel like I'm not being heard. I, the person can't make eye contact with me. I feel like I'm not, uh, like they just don't want me there. So I, I recommend like trying to make eye contact with the person um, and it, making that eye contact and introducing yourself is a way to open up the door to a relationship with your patient or um, with somebody that's asking you questions. Like even on the phone, you can do that. You know, if somebody's phoning the nurse's line or whatever, um, you know, hi, uh, you can say what your name is or make up a name if you don't want to use your real name, you know, on the phone. But, um, you know, try and be um, friendly in your mannerisms. Because that, you know, a little smile goes a long way um, and polite mannerisms and um, like you care, that really goes a long way. Yeah. Jenny, I'm all of a sudden thinking about what kind of name that I would use if I got to choose a different name. <laughs> Everybody like, ah, already, everyone already knows you, Monique, so. <laughs> uh, Marnie, did you have something you wanted to? Yeah, it's funny because each of the things that I was going to say, someone has said along the way. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, like it's it's important because I think about the times that I was dehumanized or I felt not heard or dismissed or people avoiding eye contact, or not yeah. looking me in the face or, you know, pre-COVID staying six feet plus back. back <laughs> that was weird. Yeah. Um, or calling the security guard in. To, mm -hmm. to be with them you know like those were things that were really dehumanizing for me and yeah. they didn't feel good yeah um, I guess what I can give to you is an indigenous perspective and I will say that it is important to incorporate cultural safety or have cultural humility to, to understand that like my needs may be slightly different or I may have had different experiences and and teaching um this is something that's going a little bit above and beyond but like yeah. Generally, we don't know what people have experienced that has brought them to the point that they're at. Mm -hmm. And when I was doing in community outreach, I would always have like a box of granola bars in my bag or 
uh, a couple cigarettes or something to be able to just offer somebody because if they're there, chances are they're not having a good time or something yeah. has not gone right throughout that day. And um, I don't know about you, but I'm really cranky and I'm not very nice when I'm hungry. And you know, something as simple as like a small gesture. Also, it's in Indigenous teaching is that like we share food with the people we walk alongside with. And, oh. and for me, like sharing food or offering tobacco, those those are something that means a lot. And it's and it's an Indigenous teaching that is is really simple, and you don't need to be Indigenous to follow it, right? It, it's a it's a culturally safe practice. Um, and I'm I feel like people can afford a box of granola bars. I you know what I mean to be able yeah. to give it to somebody here or there. Not everybody who's going to access the healthcare system is going to be homeless. Um, and, and if you can afford it, I feel like it's a really nice gesture that would go a long way. And it and it's just appreciated and being able to maintain eye contact and, and just um, also indigenous people use humor. We use humor. We joke around about things. You know, I it's um, it's something that I was raised with, and it's something that I really value in the relationships that I carry today. So Marnie, it's funny that you say this because I'm um, half Asian and half Scottish and we're very much about feed, feed. So I offer sandwiches to almost all my patients. I think it's the first thing I say to them. I know you're gonna have to wait. Are you hungry? Do you want a sandwich to go? I got some sandwiches here. I'm calling the food. <laughs> Definitely, so it. I appreciate that. But can I ask you something very, um, so, you know, being of, you know, quite often actually because of, of my mixed heritage, I'm often, um, I'm often asked if I am First Nations as well, but I never know how best to be respectful. Do we acknowledge their uh, culture and race? Because I know I have friends of all different cultures and races. And I know some of them get quite upset if somebody says, oh, where are you from originally? Um, and they and they look at it as a very negative thing, whereas I kind of see it as a way to engage in a way to explain, you know, who I am. And I'm not, a, I'm not embarrassed about it. I don't, I don't have an issue about it. So when you were saying that about, you know, being Indigenous and coming to a hospital, do I say to them, you know, I know I've had patients who haven't had um, healthcare or like a, a family physician, and I will say, um, may I just ask you, um, are you Indigenous? Because they have a really great Native health clinic, um, and I'm sure that they would be happy to see you because there's a bunch of resources. But then I think to myself, is that rude for me to actually acknowledge that right off the bat? Um, I don't know, I'm a bit so sensitive there's a, it, there's a great way, so there's a, there's a great, great in right there. Like, um, can, we, can we, is that okay to, for us to talk about? Or is okay. um, that something that, uh, you know, like kind of dig in a little more, is this okay that we talk about this or? Okay. Or, or, or what, right? Okay. Thank you, Sherry. Because I, I do struggle with it sometimes because I never know how best to bring it up. Um, and so, Paul, what do you think? Well, um, <clears throat> you can start with an introduction about your, your origins also. That would be okay. an icebreaker uh, if you feel people are going to be offended by it. Um, I do understand why people get offended because I get that a lot. I get that a lot. Oh, uh, where are you from? You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm Canadian. Yeah. Where are you from originally? 
and and it's usually it's usually more on a racist type of questioning mm -hmm. type of thing so um some people have been asked that a lot so after after a hundred times of getting the same thing asked over you do get a little sensitive right yeah <laughs> okay thank you for those Starting here, I would just, I'd like to reiterate to, uh, before I think we need to go back to Marnie and allow Marnie to answer the question, yeah. but I just want to reiterate too that when you ask people, like if you ask people who use substances, if they identify as a substance user, or if you identify as Indigenous or whatever, quite often because of the way the healthcare system has treated us, we want to know why you're asking that. And we assume yeah. because of the history of how we've been treated, that there is going to be a negative consequence to my response to that, that you may then go oh you're just you're native that explains a lot like th that rhetoric happens all the time but i just want to give it back over to marnie so that we can have marnie's perspective on this certainly from an indigenous lens um yeah so like i guess i would just like to start with saying that i do not speak for all indigenous people okay. and just have that like preface out there but for my yeah. personal experience and my personal preference that i can speak to um you can talk a bit about yourself and I and I guess my fear around like I always get weirded out when they're like do you identify as native first nations aboriginal indigenous yeah. whatever the government is calling us this year or however yeah. they are they are labeling us um because I'm always like am I going to receive different care or right. am I going to be treated differently or are you asking me this because like you think you have an assumption about me and that mm -hmm. is a lot of the internalized stigma that I still carry that I, it sucks, but like it's there. Um, yeah, I think it is a sensitive topic. And I think that also for some people, not everybody has a great relationship with their indigenous culture or they were part of the 60s scoop. You know, I'm the first generation in my family to not go to residential school. Um, my dad did not allow us to, to engage in culture or be a part of it. My mom who was non-indigenous um, was the person who provided opportunities when my dad was away in logging camp for us to access culture because she thought it was important. But um, I guess you could say that the residential school successfully beat the Indian out of my dad and my dad refused for us to access culture. So for some people, they don't have a great relationship with culture or they may not know a lot about it and they may not want to talk about it because they have shame because they were adopted into a white family or they don't know their history or they don't know where they're from because they were in foster care and adopted. So I think overall, it can be a really sensitive topic and I wouldn't, suggest doing it on a first encounter with somebody yeah I would suggest snacks like who doesn't love snacks yeah <laughs> I was I was just I was just gonna say Marty just as you just as you said it I was in my mind going so this is basically not a question to ask in the first 30 seconds yeah how about we isn't how about we learn who you are first uh yeah. address the problem in front of us and and build you know and Monique and I are both big on this in all of emergency nursing is build a relationship with these people. It, you are not, and, and we say this often on our, our podcast, you are not too busy to be nice. And I, and I'm, I'm quite frankly done with the line of there's no beds. I have 10 other patients waiting. It's like, yeah, it takes way more energy to be a bitch than it does to be nice. So just smile. You know what? You're walking around anyway, grab some juice, grab some sandwiches, grab some warm blankets. And as you're walking by, throw a blanket at everyone and say, sorry, it's busy, but here's a blanket and a sandwich. It's the best I can do. And, uh, you know, I think that's a, it's a great thing that kind of came to me is that maybe this just doesn't need to be the first question I ask. And, and I think, you know, even, 
even in this whole topic today, maybe that doesn't need to be the first question we ask is, yeah. you know, you're here with some shortness of breath. Let's, let's deal with your shortness of breath and, and get some vital signs and listen to your chest and that kind of thing. And then ask questions about history and that sort of thing. And sorry, Charlene, I cut you off there. No, no, I was just going to say that's actually a perfect segue to what uh, my closing statement would be is that um, quite, Obviously we I, I have it. seen and I see quite often from my perspective that, you know, people get into the healthcare system, uh, usually with really good intentions and burnout happens, things happen um, where people are just not um, you know, coming to the work with that really great mindset of really still just wanting to help people and all people and, and not checking your own bias and your own stigmatizing ideals at the door and really coming to your work with like being caring. People are coming to you in crisis and more than any other time in their life, that's when they need kind, compassionate care. And my, my final suggestion would be is if you're working in a healthcare industry, um, and you have come to a point where you do not feel that you're able to, to come to your work with that mindset, it might be time to start thinking about a different line of work because you're causing more harms in an industry where people come for help and assistance. I kind of disagree agree with that because, um, you know, as there's other things that happen, like, in the, like per se, in the emergency room and that, where like there's there's a a lot of um, people a lot of injuries um, death and um, and um, sometimes you know that's a little harder than to get over than to say oh okay you know um, how's it going <laughs> kind of thing you mm -hmm. know I think. Uh, we have, I think that we need to remember that they are people too, and that what um, you know they're gonna have good days and bad days, and and uh, and we need we need to learn to uh, to I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, but we need to learn speak that same language, right? That they want we want them to speak to us. You know what, Sherry, that um, you, that's very generous of you um, for you to, it is, it's very generous and very kind of you to kind of extend that kind of olive branch. But as Jenny says, it explains behavior, it doesn't excuse the behavior. But I appreciate what you're saying is that um, by your, by both of people's examples, hopefully we reach a place where we can be mutually respectful um, of folks. And Marnie, I just want you to know that when I'm ticking off all those uh, uh, forms, I get to be an other. <laughs> I don't, I don't actually fit in on anything. So I, I get to tick other uh, for that as well. So um, I just, I, I, I want to have one, one comment on, on what Charlene says. And I think uh, I, I, I agree with what you said, Charlene, that I think part of being a health professional is not just knowing what's in the book, but it's knowing and being able to manage yourself. And, and I say that as someone who's, uh, you know, I've been an emergency nurse for 20, 
20 some years now. And I have left a number of times because I became that person that was snapping at people and, and that kind of thing uh, at triage and, and you know not being a good coworker. And I think it's important as professionals that we realize, okay, I'm there now. And that's, that's what makes me the health professional. Honestly, anyone can read the book and learn medicine. It's not hard. The professional side is, and I can manage myself while doing this and helping other people. And the insight of oneself to know I need to go do something else. And I don't give healthcare professionals an excuse for their behavior because, uh, especially nurses, because you could have a job in 27 different places uh, tomorrow because there are nurses everywhere. And if you're burnt out as an emergency nurse, oh my God, there's a thousand places you could go tomorrow. There's They need them everywhere. So don't stay somewhere where you're miserable. Um, and I think uh, yeah, I just add a little to that, Landon, too. It's not just about and then having we'll go to Sherry. Yeah. Yeah. And then we'll let Sherry have the final word and then maybe we'll just have a summary. Um, the other thing about what Landon says, it's not just enough as a professional to take accountability and to have some self reflection on where you are at in your nursing profession. You also have to be able to have the professionalism to call your colleague out on behavior that you witness that is unprofessional and uncaring in a kind way to pull them aside and say, listen, I'm not sure what's going on, but the way that you're behaving is unacceptable. Um, and perhaps you need a timeout or, you know, something else going on. Uh, so professionalism is not just about what we are, but it's also about uh, calling somebody else out. And we as professionals should be asking or eliciting feedback as well um, you know, as well as self-reflection. So Sherry, you get to have your final last word of what you want to um, let uh, healthcare professionals know. They say that um, you learn everything that you need to know when you're in kindergarten. And I just wanna say that uh, um, they really needed to step up in uh, all those years because there was a lot more they could have uh, taught people in kindergarten. Thank you. And that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> well, I like what you said, Sherry. So the, the few words that really kind of struck me uh, from this conversation is uh, very much what all of you have said is people before problem. I love that. Um, meeting people where they're at uh, validating and being respectful and showing that you're caring by being present. So eye contact, introducing yourself, just kind of like the normal human qualities uh, to show that mutual respect. And then on a larger context, things like having lived experience liaisons, having education that starts in schools for nurses, um, looking at things like decriminalization and supporting OAT, uh, having safe supplies, I think is some of the things that kind of resonated with me. What about you, Landon? Anything that I missed? Uh, the only one that you missed that, that hit me was, uh, I think it was Jess who said, don't try to fix me. I, you yeah. know, when I'm this, you, you may think this is, a, and I'm sorry, Jess, I'm totally paraphrasing and probably not getting it right, but you, you, you would see this as a problem. And for me, it's not a problem right now. And so mm -hmm. please don't come the first thing in the conversation and say, so how are we going to uh, fix this problem when 
that's not why you came to the emergency department today anyway. So fix the real problem. And uh, maybe we'll build a relationship over time where we, we can talk about other things if that's even a choice. And I think that's a, a big message for me as, as well is, is people live with using drugs or other substances and that may be good for them. Mm -hmm. And it's not my job to try and get people off of substances unless that's what they want. So those are, those are my two others that uh, came up for me. So we want to thank you so much because I think having this conversation has um, been really powerful. And I do hope that all of our listeners appreciate the vulnerability and your sharing of your information and that this kind of allows them to start to have conversations in their workplaces and perhaps even to self-reflect on some of the behavior and what they bring to it. And perhaps tomorrow when they're at work, they may take a lot of what you said and change the way that they approach patients again. So I want to thank you guys so much. I think this has been quite incredible. I think I'm, I'm left with uh, just a very warm feeling. And I, I so appreciate all of your work um, in, in what you have been doing and supporting your community at large. And um, I hope that we are in partnership and I hope that uh, tomorrow will be a better day for all of us. Landon? No, uh, same thing. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, I, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to, uh, you know, put, again, put yourself out there and, and, and talk about yourselves. And uh, thank you. And I, I know that this will, you, you know, our goal right from the start of our podcast was, well, if one nurse will just listen to us and do something better, then that's our goal. And here we are five years later with a lot of listeners who uh, we can't even walk down the street some days without people recognizing our voices. And so hopefully there's more than one nurse that will change the way they treat people based on uh, what you said today. So thank you very much. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursem.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursemCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursem Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.